Hello, I'm George Stocker, and this is the Build Better Software Podcast. Today, we're talking about product discovery and customer product research. I have the privilege of welcoming Michelle Hansen, founder and CEO of Geocodio, to the show to talk about this. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, thank you for having me on today. Thanks for joining us. Now, for people who may or may not know you or Geocodio, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, so I'm co-founder of Geocodio, which is a bootstrap software as a service company that my husband and I started about six and a half years ago. We started it as a side project and over a couple of years of slowly growing, listening to our customers and building for, for what they, they needed and where the gaps in the market were, um, transitioned to full time. So my background is in product development. And that's primarily um, what, what I would say my background is is in and, and where my heart really lies. So now running a company um, with just the two of us take on a, a lot of hats far beyond product. Yeah, I bet. And before uh, Geocodio, you also did uh, product research or product management type work uh, for The Motley Fool? Yeah. So I did product management and product development, which was an incredibly fun Part of my career, worked with some really wonderful people and did a lot of fun research that led to some, some good outcomes. Okay. So what was, so I think that The Motley Fool is a, uh, is a services company. They, they have uh, financial newsletters uh, that, they, that they sell subscription services to. And Geocodio is a SaaS product. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so one was B2C and the other is B2B, which has shown me some really interesting differences in what it's like to do customer research in a, in a consumer context versus in a business context. Though I think there are a lot more similarities than people might think. Okay. So let's, let's dive first into the, uh, into the B2C context, the, to the consumer. And so that would, that would be your work at uh, the Motley Fool, I, I believe, right? Yeah. So, so you mentioned that they, uh, create financial newsletters. And a lot of what we're doing is basically how do we modernize the concept of a financial newsletter? So they had gone from um, being print newsletters and then, and then been fairly revolutionary and bringing them online fairly early. Um, and then how do you evolve that into something that meets the expectations that consumers have now of things being customized and, and personalized and meeting their interests and being consumable very quickly um, all those those kinds of things about that are that are very um, that that have been very relevant and consumer for quite some time now. Um, how do we make the concept of a financial newsletter or a fi- or a sort of financial publishing product meet those kinds of expectations? Yeah, and so what was the wh- where would an idea start, and where would the customer come in uh, when you were designing something new for a customer uh, at the Fool? That's a really interesting question because it came in in a lot of different places um, when we first started um, really working directly with customers when I was there, um, it was at the very end of the process, um, which people say is generally um, not when you should start talking to them. You should start talking to them before you even have the idea. Um, but when we first started, um, the, the customer was, was not um, in the beginning part of the process. And so it was more at the very end in terms of usability testing. And the more and more we did that and the more and, and more that we were creating things and then they, they, they weren't reaching the KPIs that we were hoping for. That's we started going back in the process and talking to the customer earlier and earlier and earlier until eventually the customer was the very first start. 
Um, but we did a lot of different types of customer interaction from in-depth interviews that could be an hour or an hour and a half to usability testing to um, we, we did testing of products. We did testing of landing pages. Um, we did um, observations through tools like Hotjar and, and user testing where, where you're not actually interacting with the user. Um, we were fortunate to do a lot of different types of, of, uh, of learning from our customers. Yeah. And so you noticed that there was a KPI difference. So when you talked to the customers earlier, did it, did it affect your KPIs? Did they, go in the, they start going in the right directions? Was there a correlation between the two? Yeah, so where, where the product process would start um, what, for, for probably the first year I was there uh, was you, you would have you know, a spreadsheet of all of the different KPIs and um, measures of, of you know, different groups of users and whether they were meeting them. And you know, so if a user clicked on this, their likelihood that they, they ended up meeting the KPI was, was this, but if they didn't click on this, but they clicked on this instead, you know, that they, and sort of all sorts of permutations like that. And it, so it would really start out with, okay, what's the, what does the spreadsheet say about the users who are the most successful did these actions? So then how do we make more users do those actions so they become more successful? Hmm. Um, and the problem was that was that those, those actions really weren't, weren't causative. And there was an awareness that those actions weren't causative, but there was a limited ability to be able, well, if we don't, if we don't use the spreadsheet, then what are we going to use? And so there could be a little, you know, well, let's bring in customer support and see what they think. And, and, and so we would, you know, be gradually refining the products. And it really wasn't until we started interviewing the customers and diving deep into what they were trying to do um, and baking usability pro uh, testing into the process and bringing developers and des designers into those interviews and into those usability sessions mm -hmm. that we really started to have breakthrough. And so it sounds like The Fool had a very robust technical process for uh, getting metrics from users like they and that it sounds like from what I'm hearing at least that you took that and you also but you you think sorry get mayor once you focused on actually face-to-face you know, -face conversations with with your customer yeah there was an extremely strong culture of quantitative data and where we ended up evolving the process was bringing in the qual the qualitative side to explain, why the quantitative data was showing us what it was because you can you can you know look at google analytics all day but it's never going to tell you why somebody did something only a person can tell you that of course you shouldn't just talk to one person you need to talk to lots of them um but but we found that that really helped explain to us why things were happening as they were and once we started working more collaboratively um, with the users throughout the process then the data started to make more sense. Yeah, uh, my background uh, is uh, in programming, um, uh, programming and architecture. And um, though I've been in customer-facing roles, uh, I always get nervous talking to people who are not already like using the software and not already customers. And I especially would get nervous uh, thinking about, oh gosh, how am I gonna? How do I talk to these people? To these people about you know a product or a service that they that, that I want to build for them, but you know, it's not, it's not baked. It's not formed. How do you, how do you reach out? How do you get past that? You know, if we share it with them, it's, it may be embarrassing. It may be not what they want. You know, how do you get past that initial bump? Yeah, there's so much fear and so much justified fear that when you make yourself vulnerable and you put something in front of someone that you have created, or you've been, you've been working on, for years that they're going to say, this doesn't make any sense. And so the first big hurdle to get over is that 
the purpose of the interview is understanding their worldview and how they understand things and what their mental model is. No two humans are alike and everyone has a different way of doing things. And so what you're trying to do in an interview or in a usability session is understand how their brain works so that you can better craft what you are doing to a way, in a way that makes sense for them. And so there's, there is so uh, much fear around what happens if I put this in front of someone and they don't like it, or it doesn't make sense, or they're critical of it, or there, there, there is also just as much of, well, they're going to say something and I think that's dumb and I purposely didn't do it that way and I'm going to tell them why. And you can't do any of that because someone giving you feedback is a gift. And until you can suspend your own judgments and your own insecurities about their reactions to what you have built, you won't be able to receive that gift. And if you can put that aside and, and understand that someone is taking time out of their day to talk to you about your product, they are giving you so much useful information. And if it turns out that what they are expecting is totally different than what you have built, that is some of the most valuable breakthrough feedback because that can help you overcome so many obstacles because you can understand, oh, this is why people aren't converting or this is why I get this same support ticket over and over and over and over again. Now, the ways you could solve that is you could throw more money in advertising towards that landing page, or you could throw more bodies at it in the form of customer support, or you could fix the fact that it isn't reflecting how people expect it to behave or what they ex would want it to say or the kinds of problems they want you to solve. For. And so only through interviewing and conducting sessions with users can you really get to the bottom of those. Now, for The Motley Fool, you had existing paid premium customers you could reach out for, to for new features. Um, but I take it when you were starting to build Geocodio, you probably didn't have paying customers. So how, how did, did, how was your process for customer discovery with, with Geocodio? So we did do interviews with non-paying customers um, at, at the full. We actually, we interviewed a lot of different types of customers. So we would interview customers who uh, were on entry-level products, customers who were on mid-tier products, customers who are on the highest end products, customers who had canceled all of those products, people who had only subscribed to, to free emails for a long time but never purchased anything, people who had never heard of the company before. Um, so that was a really interesting breadth of customers. For Geocodia, we built it from a place of, it was a product that we needed ourselves. So that was where we started from because we had a couple of key blockers with the existing geocoders out there. So the first one was that they're really unaffordable. So at the time, you could either get 2,500 free um, geocodes from Google Day, which is basically an address to a coordinate or a coordinate to address because computers don't understand addresses and coordinates. So you could get 2,500 free per day, or you could pay like $20,000 a year for an enterprise license. And like, that was it. And so we're like, well, that's not going to work because we had this little um, iPhone app that showed you the opening hours of grocery stores near you. Mm -hmm. This is before you could just type it into Google and it would tell you it, six years ago it didn't do that. The other problem we had was that we wanted to be able to store the data because with Google, you, you could only cache it or, or in some cases you have to reload it every time the, the map loads. And so you run through those, those um, lookups really fast. And so we were like, we just want to be able to pay for whatever we need and then just store the data on our end. And so those two frustrations led us to creating a very rudimentary geocoder that just solved our needs. And as we talked to our developer friends about this, 
they were like, oh, like I have that problem too. And so um, one day my, my husband ended up going, I think he was, I think he was actually on paternity leave. So he brought our daughter who was two months old at the time to um, a 1776, which was like a hackerspace uh, incubator in DC. I don't know if it's still around. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know and, either. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was a pretty cool space for a while. And uh, I actually, I did a hackathon there once. And so he brought it there and like talked to some of our friends who were working at startups um, that were working out of there and like got some feedback on the API. And, um, and, and so we built it to be very developer focused from the beginning. Um, and on our first day of launch, which was really a sign of the demand, we ended up on the front page of Hacker News pretty much all day, which nice. never happens. And you know, I think today it would be, it, that would be the equivalent of being on the, the, the top of Product Hunt, but Product Hunt wasn't around yet. And so we got a ton of feedback from people. Like we got hundreds and hundreds of emails with, can you do this? Can you do that? Like, I want to be able to do this. I wanted to be able to do that. And so from the very beginning, customer feedback was a key part of it. And I remember we were taking so many phone calls from people who had different needs. And one of the early ones that, that, that came up really often was uploading a spreadsheet. So we had built this with developers in mind, but it turned out people, you know, people in marketing or, or people who, who aren't developers had spreadsheets of addresses and they needed this information as well. And the only other option out there was you could email your spreadsheet to like some guy and he would get it back to you in a couple of days. <laughs> you knew a guy. And yeah, it was like, it was pretty sketchy. And, um, and, and there's this quote from Patrick McKenzie that I love that's, you know, if you can find a business that, that where people are emailing spreadsheets back and forth to one another, that's a really good sign that there is a potential SaaS out there. Um, and so, and so that was one of our first big features that was heavily influenced by, by customer feedback. Um, but I would say from the entire beginning of the product, it's, it's been guided by what people express to us and trying to understand those needs better and, and trying to eliminate frustrations in their process and their adjacent tasks make things easy for them. Do you have quantitative research that you do with Geocodio or is it on the qualitative side? What's that, what's that mix look like when you're, when you're dealing with uh, product discovery? So the research I do do these days kind of in two broad categories. And I, I so the first is direct um, customer interactions. So customer interviews, usability testing, and responding to customer support. So my husband and I, we do everything, including all of the customer support, which people are always surprised by. Um, but we find that we've been able to really drastically decrease the number of tickets that we've gotten over the years, just because we're the ones seeing the issues. And so we fix them so that we don't ever have that ticket recur again. Um, and we do customer interviews pre-pandemic, I guess. We, we did them on a regular basis. So I would have been doing maybe four to five a week. Um, but we've really pulled that back now that it's the pandemic and, you know, kids are at home and everyone's schedule's a bit... Uh, wonky. <laughs> yeah, a bit wonky. Yeah. And so then on, on the, the quantitative side, so I mentioned that the full, the quantitative data was very much driven by user actions. So Google Analytics, site activity, that kind of thing. And I used to do that sort of analysis. And I've really moved away from that more towards broader market level research. And so, for example, you know, we have customers in banking and, and they might say to us, oh, there, there's this specific act that our customers need to be compliant with. And there are these specific types of data that they're appending. And there is 
this tool they use from the government for it, but they don't really like it very much because it's complicated and it's clunky. Uh, is there anything you can do with that? And so what I would do with that is and said, okay, well, well, what is this act? You know, how many banks are subject to it? You know, what are the tools they're currently using? Um, how good are those tools? You know, it, it's more, it's more market research from, from a um, macro level. Um, than it is, you know, specific people. And, and, and these days, if I want answers from specific people, I will just go ask them myself rather than trying to sleuth through numbers and figure out what they're trying to do. So you'll fire um, up an email and, and send it out to a customer or? Yes. So for example, if say, you know, we're looking, we're, we're working on these specific data pens. So, so our niche in the market, I should probably explain is not only the geocoding, but unlocking pieces of data that are only accessible if you have the coordinates. So for example, let's say that you have a charity and you want people to contact Congress about an issue that is important um, to your supporters. So if you were to use any other service, to, in order to send an email to that person with their congressperson's phone number, you would first have to hit one API that gives you their coordinates. Then you have to go hit another API that goes coordinates to the congressional district number. Then you have to go to another API that is congressional district number to the congressperson's phone number. And then you have to throw all of that in, in MailChimp or, or whatever you're using. And with Geocodio instead, you can just send us the address and we'll give you all of that information back in one. Wow. So, so we'll also do that with, with census data or you know, if, you, if you want the median household income for an area or you need time zones or you know, all sorts of other things. Or very often people are if you need to connect to government data sets, they're um, at this designation called the FIPS code. Um, and so all the government data is at those levels that it's basically down to sort of the, the neighborhood block level. And so we make it easy to add all those types of data to eliminate step simples process. Wow. And so if we're like, you know, we're, we are considering adding on these. So for the banking, for example, we're considering adding on these appends that are the customers who are, who are already using this type of append are using that. I would fire off an email to, you know, let's say the 200 people who have used it recently and see if I can get five of them on the phone. Um, that's usually my rule of thumb um, is five people. Um, the, the real rule is, is you stop interviewing when you start hearing the same thing over and over again, whether, whether that's when you're, when you're putting a landing page in front of someone or you're trying to interview people about a specific discrete question. Um, though the most interviews I've ever done for one question is 11, I believe. Um, of course, there can be a lot more for exploratory research. Um, so for that, for those 11, just ballpark, how many ballpark did you have to reach out to to get 11 people to talk to you? You said before it was 200 to five. Is it is it roughly linear from that? Yeah, that was a project at The Fool. So I'm not quite sure how many people, uh, because I was not involved in, in the recruiting um, I think in my recruitment emails, I could pull up the stats on it. I want to say I usually get about a 5% response rate. So I had, I have an email that fires off to, um, to people after they make their first payment, trying to figure out why did they come to us? What are they switching from? What are they trying to do? You know, what, what caused them to switch services and, and come to us? Um, and, and I have been, you know, tweaking that every month to try to get that response rate higher and about about five percent is the best I've been able to get from. Yeah, and that's for B two B. That is in B. That is in B two B. And so it it really depends on on where you're recruiting from. So I've recruited from a lot of different places, from users who are already using the product to people who have expressed interest in it, 
to people have no idea that it exists and I got them off of Reddit or Twitter. Um, it's, it's really run the gamut. So do you, you do sleuthing on, on Reddit and Twitter to find, uh, to find um, people to interview? Yes. So, and, and just observing what people are talking about can be such a great way to understand what's going on. If you're familiar with Amy Hoy, she has a whole course on sales safari. And this is one of the tactics she talks about is see what people are already complaining about. What are, what are they saying they're trying to do and they're frustrated by it? What are they tweeting at your competitors? Um, I have found Reddit to be a great place to recruit um, users who, who don't have any biases about your product. They, they will tell you, you know, um, <laughs> and it's so great for honest feedback when something isn't working. Um, of course, you have to provide an incentive. I generally find that a $25 Amazon gift card is more than enough for people um, who have no association with the product. Um, and, and, and that applies in consumer as well. Um, though oftentimes, because it's in, in B2B and I'm one of the founders of the company, I find that people are often so grateful to have a company that is willing to listen to them that a monetary reward is, is not necessary because they're, they're just so excited that there's a company that's going to listen and not just ignore them. Mm. Um, and so usually I send them a nice handwritten thank you note and a pair of Giacodio socks. Nice. Um, never underestimate the power of a handwritten thing. Or the socks. I'm a big fan of socks myself. So. Yeah, those were a new thing that we got like six months ago. So we wanted to get some like fun swag and, you know, t-shirts, you know, it's tough because you got to get sizes and yeah. Um, yeah, the socks have been a huge hit. I love uh, it. It's, yeah, it's been kind of fun. And so your Geocodio's business model, is that uh, paid all the way through? Are there free trials? What's the, you know, what's the model look like? We have a freemium model which I've heard people describe as it's, it's not a pricing model. It's, it's a marketing strategy, which is totally accurate because our, our, our free tier does the marketing for us. Um, so at a very low level, um, you can get 2,500 free per day, which we started that level because that's what Google was offering at the time. And so we basically, we, we had to offer that in order to be competitive. Um, and then we have a pay as you go plan. So you can just pay for whatever your usage was, which was the big thing that we really wanted at the beginning. Um, but then we've had to add on a variety of other tiers to meet other needs. So we have an unlimited tier, um, which is a non-rate limited plan for people who need to process up to 5 million addresses a day, uh, which is a monthly subscription. We, we also have sort of more custom you know, on-premise options. We launched a HIPAA compliant product about two years ago. Um, so, so there's a lot of different options for people depending on what their volume security needs are nice um from a uh from a feature perspective um you know how often do you find yourself needing to do research for new features versus you know um just go ahead and building it is is the is the interview now an integral part of every time that you want to release a feature or is it sometimes you're like no this is safe we'll just we'll just release this the features always come out of customer feedback always. Um, so whether that's, it's, it's come up in interviews or in support requests, um, features are always coming out of, um, of feature or, or requests or feedback from users. We're, we're never doing the, you know, gather the smartest guys in, in a room with a conference table and have them come up with something largely because we don't have a conference table and, and we're not all guys. Um, and, but that's a very common, you know, product development process in a lot of companies is let's just, you know, get our smart people together and they'll figure something out. 
And we have thousands of customers who have been so generous with us on their own, their own feedback and sharing their own vulnerabilities of where they're frustrated with their own processes that we have more than enough um, to, to inspire us to move forward and, and, and to make improvements. Um, so for example, we added zip plus four data for mailing purposes. So if you, you, know, you have your zip code and then there's the, the plus four that's more specific for the USPS. We re started receiving requests for that probably five or six years ago. And we just launched that in May. Um, but that came out of years and years of customer feedback and learning very intimately what people wanted and why they wanted it and how it fit into their process. So that it came time to build it, we had a very clear idea of it. Um, and we also do, um, if there are questions about, especially about interfaces, that's where um, usability testing really comes in handy. Um, and interface there are like uh, API or UI or other types. Of yes. Yeah. So the API or any sort of other interface rather than the sort of conceptual level of the need, mm. um, you know, how do you tangibly translate that need into something that someone can interact with? Um, usability testing is really helpful there. And um, most of the time we do usability testing in advance um, of that, unless it's a very straightforward change. So for example, we're currently converting our dashboard to Tailwind, uh, which my husband's been really excited and, and wanted to do for a very long time. That's a We're, CSS framework? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and, and so we're not doing usability testing on that, but that's because we're doing a one-to-one -one copy over of that right now. And then but once we get it into Tailwind, then we can do the usability testing on top of it because it's running on Bootstrap 3 right now, and it's not a, a delight to work with. Um, so, so we probably put off work on that, but now that it's in a, a much more workable framework, we'll, we'll be doing more iteration on it. Modern software development, we focus on generally avoiding talking to people. A, a B testing is, is big. Um, yeah. you know, if you were going to rank, uh, the methods of, of getting, you know, customer research, product feedback and, and doing product discovery, uh, kind of what, how would you rank them in descending order? I think there's space for every tool, but I think there are a lot of tools that get used in scenarios where another one might be more appropriate. And, you know, maybe you're using a chainsaw when all you really need is an ax or a hammer. Um, and, and so it's about understanding where those tools fit. And, and there are a lot of companies um, that are very, you know, we're very into A-B testing and this, this is, this is what we do. And, but then they don't do other ones or, I mean, if, even if there was a company that just did interviews, you, you need other pieces of information from your users um, at a high level, at a, at a large scale, and, and at a micro scale. And so I think you need a holistic view of all of the different ways of listening to your customers, whether that is literally listening to them in a conversation or listening to them in the, in the form of which landing page are, are they reacting to. But those landing pages coming out as a result of lots of interviews and done usability testing on them. And then you do the A-B test because you're unclear on which, you know, design is really going to work better, even though the copy from that directly flows from your interviews and from the research, the, the broader market research you've done and you've tested them for the other, other elements. I think a lot of companies skip steps or they see that, you know, um, they see that interviews and usability testing are time consuming and so they just don't do them. And, or, or they're harder to articulate the benefits of them to upper management and so they get shelved. And I think companies are 
and leaders are doing themselves a real disservice when they do that and underestimating the power of usability testing and, and interviewing. And, and A-B testing is also quite exciting as well. You know, I, I think the really underappreciated piece about user feedback, again, whether that's A-B testing or usability testing, is the power it has to invigorate a team. So some of my most exciting times working with other people, whether that's my husband or, or on teams with people at The Fool or at other jobs, was when we're seeing how something is going, you know, sitting in a room with people who are not just product and UX people, but also the developers and the designers, seeing if someone can complete a top task analysis and everybody shouting at them to find, you know, oh, no, of course them, us on mute, um, to, hoping that they find the button that we want them to find. Um, you know, I mean, it's so exciting. And then when they do and everyone cheers or, you know, you're running, uh, I, I think about running A-B tests on, on login pages and, oh, our logins went up 5% and the, the bounce rate went down and everyone's cheering and, you know, or you're, you're in an interview and someone perfectly articulates a problem that the team thinks it's solving but has not heard the user actually specifically articulate. And they do. And, you know, I've seen people throw up a touchdown in the, in the middle of them. Um, it's so exciting. And, and when you have those experiences as a team and you're really connected with the user and, and you've heard from them yourselves or you've seen what they're going through yourself, um, it's so powerful and it makes your, your meeting so much easier because you don't have to explain, well, this is our user persona for this type of person and this is what they're trying to do because that's kind of boring and it's really hard to build empathy for, for that user, for that person that is trying to do this. If you can say, well, remember when we talked to Susan last week and she was talking about how this, this, and this, well, we've seen that in our data of these thousand users who are also trying to do that. And so here's why we're going to do this test, or here's why we're going to redesign this particular page. And everything just clicks for the team so much faster. And, and, and I felt that like it just breathes so much life and into the team and, and put the wind in our sails because everyone was moving in the same direction. Nice. Now, um, I mean, you actually had me thinking back to when I was doing customer interviews. Uh, it, was a, it was a long time ago. Uh, it was for the army and it was software that allowed them to uh, basically manage, uh, set what the army's force strength, fourth force strength would look like and what units would be assigned, what they would have equipment and personnel wise. And we went out and we, you know, we'd been getting complaints that the software was slow. And of course it wasn't slow to us, um, but we went out there and we, we spent a week at these different places talking with users and, you know, went in day to day and watched them, just watched them use the system and watched, you know, what they were expecting. But one of the things that we didn't have is we didn't have the analytics side. So when it came time to, you know, try to solve these problems, it was hard because we didn't have... The analytics, we had the qualitative, but the people in the decision-making were quantitative people, but we had all this nice qualitative data. You know, how do you, how do you deal with when there is, you know, the person who wants to make the decision, you know, either, I don't want to say doesn't believe the data or, you know, but prefers the type of data you don't have. How do you, how do you get around that? Do you, do you build the quantitative side or do you just you know, say, oh, I think you really need both kinds of data. And what I found to be really, really powerful in helping people understand the value of qualitative data was to bring them into the room themselves. So, you know, we had scenarios where there were people who 
really didn't didn't deal much with the tech side. So, for example, you know, a portfolio manager um, who was used to interacting with, with with people who used it, but but not really in that in that kind of a context. And we would just have them sit in the room as a silent participant in the interview. And it could be so powerful for them to just hear these things because you could see like the wheels turning for them and them having break for those. Oh, so that's why that. Because I'm willing to bet that even those those people who arm themselves with data are can oftentimes be doing it out of a place of vulnerability because they want to understand what's happening. And if to what you were saying much earlier, they're they're scared of of negative outcomes and they're arming themselves with data to prevent those negative outcomes, it can be quite relevatory to hear someone explain why those things are happening. Mm. And so I think whenever you you get friction, invite those people in the room with you. They don't have to be doing the interviewing. That's that's a it's a skill that takes a lot of practice. And, and you know, I'm grateful that I learned from some incredibly talented, well-trained people myself. Um, bring them in the room with you. Just have them sit there on mute. They don't say anything, but they can just sit there and absorb because it's so powerful for them to hear it for themselves and not read it in a report or you know, see it in a graphic um, shared across the company, bring them in the room. And, you know, um, even at the, at the full, we got to a point where even the, the director of our team was running interviews themselves. Um, and it, it's, it's so powerful to do that. And, and I think there is, there's also a, a stigma that it's worth addressing here that a lot of organizations have that speaking to customers directly is the lowest on the totem pole, right? In a lot of companies, people work their way up from customer support. It's an entry-level position. And, and I've seen this in company after company that people basically think that they get to a certain point where they're too good to talk to the customer. And that is one of the most dangerous and toxic attitudes that can exist in a company. You are never too good to talk to a customer. Nobody is. And in fact, your customers always have things to teach you, whether you are in the middle of the company, like, like I was at the fool or at the top of it, like I am now, there's always something your customers can teach you. And I learn things from them every single day. And I'm so grateful for that. And everybody can talk to customers. Hmm. So on that note, how do I, how do I get started? Let's say I'm building a new product. I won't say whether or not I am, but let's say I'm (laughs) building a new product and you know, I, I want to take what you're saying and I want to, I want to apply it. How do I get started with this? Yeah. So I would, so it, it depends on what stage you're at, right? So let's say you just have an idea for right now. Yeah. We'll so, if, so if I just had an idea and I have this problem and I want to know if other people have this problem. So the first thing I would probably start doing is I would try to see if I can find any friends who or acquaintances. Acquaintances are better because they'll be more honest with you um, who have this problem. Or whoever, and, and, and really when you're talking about having that problem, you want to find someone who is going through that process. Mm. They're trying to accomplish that same job, right? And jobs to be done perspective. They have that same end goal. Um, and find some acquaintances you can talk to, but also go kind of like find people online that you don't know. So whether that is in, um, on Reddit or on Twitter or on Facebook groups, um, I, I have a friend who did a lot of interviewing last summer and she, she specifically wanted to talk to stay at home military moms who are trying to, um, earn money cause she wanted to find a way, um, a more beneficial way for them to earn money than getting sucked into pyramid schemes. And so she recruited from a lot of mom Facebook groups, for example, um, and, and listservs. So 
assemble a group of people that you can talk to about, about the problem. Give them, say, a 10 to $25 gift card in exchange for an hour of their time and do a phone interview with them. It's extremely important that it's a phone interview because they will be more honest with you over the phone than they would over video. Or sometimes I find even in person because they basically forget that you're a person who has opinions and judgments and feelings. And the more they forget that, the more open they will be with. So you have found your, your group of users and I would create a script. And in this script, you're not talking specifically about your idea for something. You wanna hear about this process, about this problem that they have. And you wanna hear about how often they're experiencing it and how painful that, it, that is for them. And so pain can be in the form of it's expensive, it's literally painful. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago who interviews customers about knee braces. Um, it could be- That is literally painful. <laughs> literally painful, yeah. Um, and it, it could be that it takes a lot of time or there's a lot of bureaucracy involved or that they don't like the vendor that they have to use for it. Um, and you wanna listen for those problems that are both frequent and painful. So the so um, Des Trainer, the founder of Intercom, has a great blog post that I refer people to all the time. It's called, um, not all good products make good businesses. And what he talks about this in there, the sort of pain and frequency matrix where you want to avoid the, the quadrant that is low pain and low frequency because nobody struggles with it and they don't do it very often. You know, I, I often think of that, um, that startup that, that would squeeze bags of fruit to make you a smoothie or ju juicer or whatever. Is it, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's those startups that people are like, why does anyone? It had a $700 right? juicer. Exactly. It's like, this is not a problem I experience and it, it's not very often. Um, low pain, high frequency can be great because it's annoying. It's the equivalent of a mosquito and people might be willing to pay to make that go away. High pain, low frequency is a great category. Think of buying a house in this category. Like people, if they're lucky, maybe do it two to three times in their entire life. So we don't have a lot of experience with it and it's very expensive to get it wrong. So we're willing to pay a lot of money to make sure that it goes right. You know, title insurance and realtors and lawyers and all. High pain, high frequency is the best category to be in. So when I'm talking to customers and they're telling me about their process and all of the different pieces of it, I'm listening for those things, that those tasks that they are doing, that they're doing on a regular basis that are in so some way painful for them. Um, and so have a script. You want to talk about, you know, talk to me about what is it you're trying to do? What have you already tried? Um, where are you now? And, and, you know, where are you struggling with? Those are the four things you really want to get out of that. Um, I see just writing a script for yourself, demoing it on a friend or a family member first, print out the script, leave yourself, you know, five or six carriage returns so you can write your notes in it and make sure you're getting all of your questions. And then the big thing that I tell people is if you have told someone that you're going to interview them for an hour, I always plan that my questions are done halfway through. And at that point, um, I say, you know, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm, I'm so grateful and I've learned so much from you. Is there anything else you think I should? And then you wait and you wait until it is uncomfortable. And what I have found is that the floodgates will open at that point. Basically what you have done during the first part of the interview is you've gotten your information, but you have showed them that you care about this task or process they're doing maybe on a daily basis that probably nobody has ever cared about. This is especially true in a business context. Like how many things do we do every single day that are just part of our work that are not very exciting? And, but nobody has really ever asked us about them or 
never mind asked us to how they could be better or easier. And so what you've done in that first half is build rapport with them. And you, you build that rapport by not interrupting them, by not negating them, by not explaining why you did something one way or another. You just let them talk as much as possible. And then so if you've built that rapport with them, then they, you've primed them to talk about this topic and they've sh you've shown them that you're somebody who cares about this thing that nobody ever asked them about. And then they will be so open with you. And I find that the best information comes out of interviews in that second half. And, and I have found this to be true with, you know, women who are my own age when I'm talking to them. And I have talked to 88 year old men about their retirement situations and how they're, con they're consulting actuarial tables to see how long they're going to live versus their wife and make sure that there's enough money for their wife. If they're like, like all of these things, I've, I, like, I have talked to people who are interns and students and people who are um, company leaders myself. It works on everyone. Everybody likes to be listened to. And especially in a B2B context, people are used to being ignored. How many times have you filed a bug request with a company or sent off a suggestion and took the time to write that up and then nothing ever came of it, right? Mm -hmm. We're so used to being ignored that having somebody who is willing to listen to you is, um, it, people are really caught off guard by it in, in a very positive way. And, and I think it's a really powerful way to start your company. And, and I tend to find, even though this is not the intention at all, that the people I interview tend to become incredibly vocal advocates for the company years later. And it, and it always uh, pleasantly surprises me. But listening to people is powerful. Hmm. There was so much good goodness in there. Uh, if you send me the, the link to the blog post, I will happily add it to the show notes, uh, the one that you were talking about with the four quadrants of frequency yes. and Yeah, it's pain. a great blog post. Uh, I think he uses different terms, but it's basically the same idea. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's for a new idea. Let's say you have an existing team, you have an existing um, product, whether it's for an internal customer or you know, in, in a B2B, a, another you know, paying business. Um, you don't, they, they don't currently do any qualitative, it's all quantitative. Uh, how do you suggest they get started? Is it the same way? Is there a different uh, approach you would take? So I suggest that customer interviewing isn't done on an ongoing basis, um, just to, to build general team awareness of what your customers are trying to do and how you fit into that. Um, and so building off of that, of, of that baseline, um, if you have a, you know, a specific tool that, that keeps surfacing as people having issues with it. Um, the place I would probably start with that is a, is a combination of, of your quantitative data and then um, some usability testing just to get a broad overview of, okay, where might the problems be? And if you do have a customer support team, definitely bring them in and have them in the room when you're planning this out so that they can also contribute, you know, here's where we're getting the most support tickets on this or, People often have confusion about this, that that can help um, focus your script for your usability interview. Um, and then so you can recruit from your existing user base, or you can also recruit from people who um, are prospects or, you know, someone, someone who has not encountered the product, but experiences the problem, like, like from Twitter or Reddit. Okay. Now, what resources would you share with people looking to learn more about this uh, field? Books, websites? Oh my gosh. So um, <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of the Rosenfeld books. Um, so um, Indy Young has a fantastic book that I recommend all the time called Practical Empathy. 
which is the, the use of, of, of empathy and, and taking other people's perspectives um, in, in business and, and work settings and, and the power of that, which I think is a, is a foundational read. Um, there are also several other great Rosenfeld books on this. UX Team of One is a great one. Um, there are, I, I would say that I do tend to struggle with UX books sometimes because with the exception of um, User Experience Team of One, they're often written from the perspective of a huge corporation that might have a whole usability testing team and lab, and you've got a hundred people who are just focused on UX. And, and so they, uh, they can be written from, from that perspective. And, you know, a lot of the, the companies doing, you know, ethnographic research with customers um, are huge consultancies. So, um, so that can make it a little bit tricky, but the tactics themselves um, are quite relevant. I think the best training you can do is probably to try this for yourself. Um, and so we used to run a, a jobs to be done meetup here in DC. And one of the things we did was had people interview the person sitting next to them about the last product they bought and wow. just see what, see what you find. And there, there are um, resources available online of, you know, a, a sample script for this and just trying to talk about something. What is the last thing you bought? will teach you so much about how you need to comport yourself in an interview, because really that's, that's one of the most important things to learn when you're interviewing someone, how you treat the other person is more important than what you say. Hmm. So what's up next for uh, you and for Geocodio? Continue listening to our customers and building based on that. Nice. Whew. So where can uh, people go to find out more about you and more about Geocodio? So Geocodio is um, geocod.io. Um, and then I do have a personal website at mjwhanson.com. There's some blog posts I've written, um, other podcasts I've been on, um, or on, on Twitter at MJW. Nice. Um, thank you very much for joining me today. I learned a lot. This is really fun. Yeah. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Please join me next time on the Build Better Software podcast.